Welcome to Ideas on Trap. In the light of the ongoing global pandemic, we will be hosting a series of short conversations around that theme. I hope you and your families are staying safe. Please follow all the recommended guidelines by the public health expert organizations that are responding to the crisis. Do not spread panic and only share information from credible and verified sources. Thank you. Ideas on Trapped Coronavirus Quickcast, and I'm here with Dr. Ike Anya. Dr. Ike is a public health physician and consultant, and he has worked on outbreaks, both small and large, in the past. Welcome. Thank you very much, Toby. Where I'd like to start is, as, as we know, Nigeria, some of the hotspots in Nigeria, Lagos, Ogun, and the FCT are currently yes. under lockdown. Yes. So now, I think what I first want to know is that at this point, is that our best strategy? You know, for example, Lagos is highly populated and yes. some neighborhoods can be highly dense. You know? yes. So now, if we are not enforcing measures like social distancing and other hygiene measures, at the neighborhood and street level, is yes. lockdown going to be an effective strategy ultimately? Yes, I mean, I think the, the, I think I, I would like to start by saying a couple of things. One is that in an outbreak, you know, outbreaks are always um, complex and delicate um, situations, you know, processes to work with. And nobody anywhere in the world, you know, I'm ready to be challenged on this. No one in anywhere in the world gets it 100% right 100% of the time. You know, you are having to make decisions um, very rapidly in the face of imperfect information and a situation that's constantly changing. So that's the first um, starting point. And with the resources you have to hand. So in terms of the lockdown, absolutely, it's, you know, Yes, it has its downsides. Yes, I'm conscious of all the issues around overcrowding and people's livelihoods and the impact of it. You know, those are all very valid comments and, and, and issues. But the other question is, what is the alternative? You know, test kits are in short supply across the world. The logistics to deliver a mass testing program, huge, even huger than the challenge of trying to enforce a lockdown. So, you know, you, you do have to pick the best that you can and try to supplement those measures with other measures. So, you know, I'm sure that it's not just the lockdown that's going to be happening. You know, there's going to be um, some identification of cases and contact tracing. I know that the expansion of testing is happening or is in the process of happening. Um, but, you know, that, that's, that's the reality. Um, it's interesting. I mean, if you look across the world, different um, governments, different countries are taking different approaches. And that often happens with um, outbreaks of completely new infections. And to be honest, it will probably be in two or three years' time when we start doing all the evaluations and the debriefing, which is an important part of emergency planning and outbreak management. You know, you always do your debriefs every day and, you know, at the end of the whole exercise. And I think that's when we'll begin to know who's actually got it right and who hasn't. And I don't think it will be because um, 
some people had superior science over the others, um, it, you know, there'll be an element of just chance. Mm. Okay, you talked about the economic costs and yeah. um, the logistical difficulties uh, with tracing, and yeah. given that Nigeria doesn't really have a national database yeah. that we can speak of. Now, I'm not trying to blame anybody here, yeah. but yeah. could we have adopted a more proactive approach? You know, given that before this thing got to Africa, the narrative out there is that because of Ebola, Africa is better prepared. So did we get complacent at, at any point? Um, I, I don't think I don't think anybody was complacent because I don't think anybody in um, who works in public health and certainly in outbreaks is ever complacent. You know, that's the natural. We're very much aware that that call you get on Friday afternoon of a child with fever may be the beginning of something really major. And so we tend to treat every individual case as, you know, as a potential outbreak. Um, so I wouldn't think it was complacency. Um, what I would say is that one of the other things I think it's important for people to appreciate is that um, public health is political. You know, you learn that in public health 101, pretty much. You know, you cannot separate out public health from politics. And so when you have an outbreak, there may be something that from a scientific or epidemiological view is clear that that's the right thing to do. But then there's a huge number of competing interests that are equally valid and equally forcefully pushed. And so the art of the public health physician or public health specialist is trying to navigate those, you know, those barriers, if you see what I mean. Um, and so were there things you could have done before Possibly. I mean, I know people were calling for, you know, an immediate ban on flights from outside. But if you read all the World Health Organization guidance, you know, I teach a class on global health um, at, at Bristol University. And, you know, it's very clear that there's that, and it happened during Ebola as well, that there's the imperative of trying to balance if you shut down flights and movement, you're shutting down the economy. You know, and at what point does that outweigh the risk of you know, what you're trying to, to do. And like I said, no one gets it completely right 100% of the time. And in relation to Africa being prepared for Ebola, I think, uh, or being better prepared, I think there's no doubt that Africa is better prepared um, um, than it was. That doesn't mean that we should be complacent because this is a completely different virus and a completely different um, pattern of outbreak. But, you know, when you look back, before Ebola, there was no such thing as the Africa Center for Disease Control. That now exists. In Nigeria, we have the Nigeria Center for Disease Control, and I've got to declare a conflict of interest. The chief executive is my very, very close friend um, and former business partner. Um, but, you know, you have people like that in position in, in various organizations, you know, the West Africa Health Organization. You have Professor Stanley Okolo, who used to be a professor at UCL um, hospitals here. And then there's also, you know, the science, the scientific laboratory background. You know, we didn't have labs. In Ebola, we had to send all our samples to Dakar. And the delay that that caused alone, now we have several labs across, across Nigeria. So I think, you know, these are all the things that need to be uh, t taken into context. We have many more field epidemiologists trained. 
um, back in March 2018, I think, I helped organize and run the first ever simulated outbreak in West Africa. You know, that was the first ever time. And in the process of doing that, trained up a whole bunch of people who had never taken part in exercises before, hadn't done simulations before, and they were passing that information on. The Africa Field Epidemiology Network has trained up quite a lot of um, epidemiologists. And, you know, I mean, without, again, without trying to be complacent about it, you know, people may complain now about how long it's taking, say, the NCDC or the Public Health England or the NHS to respond. But, you know, one of the things is that we're probably getting the best that we can under the circumstances with the resources that we allocated to these organizations. Because that's something else to remember. True, true. So talking about balancing competing interests now, given that there really isn't a a moratorium to outbreaks, this will go on for a while. And uh, given given that there isn't a moratorium on what? On outbreaks. Yeah. Yeah, they happen all the time, yes. Yeah, yeah. And and it could go on for a while. There's no... There's no uh, time time limit, so to speak, and at least in any precise sense. Um, yes. And and also the economic cost. People talk yep. about universal testing. Do you think that's a viable strategy? You know, where everybody is there a future point where the safest path, at least without a vaccine, is for everybody to get tested. Well, I mean, you know, in an ideal world, that's what you'd want. You know, in an ideal world, we would roll out, test everybody today, right? So everybody would know. But the reality is, you know, what is feasible? What is practical? On one hand, my natural inclination as an optimist and someone who tries to deal with problems is that I I believe there's very little that's impossible. So I I can't say universal testing is impossible. You know, I think with enough will in the world and the right people, you can pretty much do anything. I mean, look at some of the rescue packages that are being announced um, by central banks and, you know, treasuries across the world. If you had suggested five months ago, you know, that you wanted extra funding for this or that, they would have said no money. So, so, you know, so I think um, universal testing is a possibility, but how realistic is it? and so I think that's where, obviously, sort of the number of things that are working at the same time. And I think that's what's in some ways um, exciting about where we are, um, if you can use exciting about such a dire situation, is that, you know, there's been this explosion in innovation and the, if you like, channels that facilitate innovation. You know, if you think back 20 to 30 years ago, if there was an outbreak, it was pretty much something that the health ministry or department dealt with, you know, with perhaps with some support from other departments. Now, you know, you have civil society groups, you have tech developers, you have young people just doing their own thing, um, partly facilitated by the internet. And so there's this huge explosion of innovation. So who knows what will emerge? I think Obviously, you cannot um, base your strategy on who knows what will happen. So you've got to uh, face the practical. So I think, yes, probably a ramping up of testing. Yes. I don't know, but it will probably have to be targeted in some way in order to make the best use of 
the available resources. Um, I can't exactly spell out how that is, but you know, there's, there are ways of sort of identifying who's at highest risk or at least estimating who's at highest risk and who needs to be tested first and trying to match that to, your, to what's available. Okay, so you at the same time, using the you know using the tools we already know work. So social distancing, um, where necessary, self isolation, uh, lockdowns, and combining that with you know identifying and tracing um, cases as far as possible. Yeah, uh, and let's go back a bit to social distancing. What yeah. what do you really think would make that message really thinking? Because at least uh, based on my own observation yeah. and what you see on social media. And yeah. People are not really, especially at the local level, people are not really social distancing. Is it that they do not fully internalize the threat or this is just an elite uh, problem? Well, I think, I think I'll say a couple of things. I often say to students and, you know, in, in public health, when they ask me questions, I often say, um, you know, if we could work out how to change human behavior, you know, the magic bullet for changing human behavior, you know, whoever does that would probably be a multi, multi, multi billionaire. And, you know, public yeah, yeah. health could pack up public health could pack up its shop and go home because that's at the core of most of what we face. Yeah, um, yeah. But the reality is, you know, when people aren't internalizing a message from public health, what you want to understand is why is that? Because often what people think is irrational, you know, there's, a, there's usually a very rational reason behind it. You know, it may not make sense to someone else that's not in that reality. So I think that would be the starting point, trying to understand from those people you know, why, what it is that's making them not take social distancing seriously. Is it that they don't believe that COVID exists? Is it that they don't believe that it's fatal? Is it that they believe that they are protected? Or is it that they feel there's nothing they can do because, you know, their circumstances, their living circumstances, their business circumstances means that they can't release, you know, socially distance. And so they think, well, or are they just so hopeless thinking, you know, my life is worth nothing anyway. So, you know, COVID is just one more in many things that threats I'm facing now. So I might as well, you know, and that's where and that's where, you know, when I talk about everyone having a role to play in this in this um, in, in the response to this, you know, that's where it'd be interesting if we had, you know, sociologists, anthropologists doing some of this work, trying to understand, you know, some of our. Um, advertising people, they do it all the time for their markets, for marketing their products. Could yeah, they help yeah. do some of that? You know, they know how to sell, you know, cigarettes to those local people. You know, they know how to sell all kinds of things to them. So how do they sell, you know, how do they sell social distancing to them? Yeah, yeah, true. I'm not seeing, you know, I'm seeing lots of criticisms of the... Um, the advice for social distancing in overcrowded um, situations. Um, I haven't seen yet any proposed solutions or alternatives being put forward. And I think, you know, it is right that we criticize and contextualize um, recommendations that come from health authorities. But, you know, it would also be helpful as we do that to think about 
well, what else, what could be done instead? Because the reality sure. is, you know, you, you can't rehouse millions of people overnight. So they are going to live in those slums. Do we advise them to put buckets of disinfectant, you know, in their houses and use that frequently in the way that was used in Liberia doing Ebola? I don't know. You know, part of the thing about something like this is it's a time to try out new things because no one knows. Sure, sure. Let's talk about healthcare funding a bit. Yeah. Of course, the crisis has brought that issue to the fore again, and people are talking about how underfunded healthcare is, yeah. at least in this context in Nigeria. Yeah. So, but we've also seen a large, a, a wave of um, private donations yeah. to the healthcare sector. So, yep. and some people are saying, oh, where, where has this money been all the while and, yep. and uh, stuff like that. So what, what do you think really is the bottleneck to healthcare funding? Is it a case of incentive or is it a case of we just wait for the worst case scenario and then we start scrambling? Is it that there isn't enough priority at the policy level? You know, how do we balance the private and the public incentives around the healthcare funding? Okay, I'll start with, you know, one of my favorite mantras, especially since we started Nigeria Health Watch and Epi Africa, and I started working more in Nigeria and um, across the African continent, yeah. um, was to begin to flip that question about um, what we don't have in the Nigerian health system or the African health system, to start asking, are we doing the best with what we do have? So we don't have a CT scanner or an MRI scanner in, in this hospital, but we do have an X-ray machine. Are those X-rays being produced to the best standard? Are they being read in the best way? And are the results being applied consistently in, in the best way? You know, we don't have, I don't know, you know, the fancy pediatric wards, but WHO guidance on treatment of malaria in under fives, are we consistently delivering that to every single child in every health center in Nigeria? You know, maybe these are some of the things that would help. And I think that also sort of links to the um, uh, spending side. Of course, you know, I could repeat endlessly what everyone says, healthcare is underfunded, um, it often takes emergencies like this to, on, you know, on loosen the string or to loosen the strings of the purses of private individuals, but also of government. In Nigeria, it's, it's an example. You know, we had been campaigning through Nigeria Health Watch, um, through the Prevent Epidemics Niger campaign for, I think, probably 18 months or so about funding for epidemics and making sure NCDC had what it needed. And that didn't really come through until the last couple of weeks, you know. Um, and so you have that. But I think, yes, people do have, um, people, are, you know, private people, public people are not, and organizations are probably not funding as much as they should. But I think you need to tackle that from a number of um, angles. One is encouraging them and showing them why and how and the scale of the problem. But the other is also providing that other side I'm talking about, the confidence that when, when and if more money is allocated, that there will be results coming out the other end. Because otherwise, then people think, oh, well, you know, we increased the budget last year 
um, what has changed? You know, and the examples of people who are doing great work. Last November, we had, held a conference on quality in healthcare. And, you know, it was impressive seeing examples, you know, Federal Medical Center, Ibute Meta, a government-run hospital. What the medical director, Dr. Dada, there is doing, acknowledged by everyone, you know, the cleanliness of the premises, the attitudes of the staff, lots of things that have changed. You know, this is a public institution facing all the same financial challenges that the others face, facing all the unpaid salaries and unreleased funds that others face. There was um, the, I've forgotten her name, the medical director of the General Hospital, Jede, in a rural part of Lagos State, yeah, who is yeah. doing quality assurance of her healthcare. You know, when patients are leaving, there's a basket with a blue ball and a red ball. The blue ball is if you're happy, the red ball is if you're not. You know, you put it in whichever box and someone comes to ask you why you've put it there. They have customer service, you know, in a village in rural Lagos. So I think, you know, when we talk about finance, I don't want the conversation to focus on the, oh, the government isn't giving enough, which it isn't, and it needs to, and we need to keep that pressure up. But at the same time, we also need to ask the other side of the question, what, when we do get given more, or even with the little that we have already, what are we doing with it? Are we doing making the most of it? On that note, is it a cultural thing or is it an economy-wide thing, in your opinion? Because, I mean, from what you're saying, I can imagine other industries in Nigeria uh, that do service delivery having the same complaints. You know, people not maximizing the resources, the quality of service is poor, poor customer relations and shortage of skill and results and all that. So is it really a function of... uh, the society then and the healthcare in this case is just one one of the uh, victims so to speak yeah i mean i think i think i think think to a degree that's correct because you know you can't you know you employ your doctors and nurses you you know and 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 cleaners and the hospital staff from from the society and you know you can't expect to have excellent staff from a society where the incentives generally are not um geared to reward excellence so you know so i don't think it's i don't think it's cultural i don't think it's anything um you know naturally ingrained i've worked in nigeria i worked in the uk i don't think there's any difference in the quality of people i've worked with um i think what's different is the system under with the work and how the incentives are, are, are geared and laid out um and you know for me that's also why one of the things I'm really passionate about and is recognizing and um, highlighting those people in Nigeria against all odds are delivering change, are doing the right thing. Because as I often say, it's easy to do a good job in London, New York or Washington when you wake up and go to your office and everything you need is there to do your job. Yeah. What motivates someone in Nigeria with salaries unpaid for months to go to work on time and stay, and there are people doing it. You know, at that conference I talked about, we had someone talk about a midwife in Kaduna State, I think it was, who went to visit a family that had triplets 28 times in one month, often with her own money. And as a result of those frequent visits, was able to support the mother of the triplets to do exclusive breastfeeding for the first four months of those babies' lives. Now, 
exclusive breastfeeding for one baby is hard. To do it for three is nothing short of miraculous. And, yeah. you know, that midwife is also a Nigerian midwife. She's also probably not paid enough. She's also probably facing all the other challenges. So we need to understand better what keeps those sorts of people going. And we also need to identify them and celebrate them and tell them you're not mad. It's the other 99% who are mad. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. I like. So does the so-called brain drain have, yeah. have an effect here? The fact that some of our medical talents are leaving for shores where there are yeah. better systems and better social incentives to yeah. encourage quality work. So does, does that play a role here as well? Without a doubt. I mean, it's, it's, it's obvious that um, when you have people leaving, you, you lose a lot of talent. And of course, um, the paradox is that often those who are most able to are often the ones who leave because, you know, they are the ones who probably will have the drive to take the exams, which isn't to say that everyone who stays is staying because they can't. Many of them choose to stay out of patriotic and other reasons. But I think, you know, you do lose a significant number, you know, even just apart from the physical number, you also lose some of your talent. And that can't but have an impact on what you're able to deliver. But, you know, for me, I always find it difficult talking about brain drain because, you know, if I hadn't left Nigeria at the time I did, I wouldn't, for the UK, I wouldn't have continued in medicine. You know, I was on the verge of looking for a job in the bank at the point I left. And so, you know, I'm very conscious of the fact that, um, but then, you know, if I hadn't left, I wouldn't then have been able to set up Nigeria Health Watch subsequently, you know, and let Africa and do the work that I'm doing now. And so um, I think the issue and the question is how do we best harness our resources, again, both those locally and abroad? I'm part of a, a WhatsApp group called Doctors for Change, which I think there are over 100 of us on it now. And they are mostly doctors who, who in the last four to five years have returned back to Nigeria to either work for public institutions or set up their own private institutions or who now come regularly to do work in Nigeria. And, you know, many of them are having impact. And I think that's another aspect, actually, um, that isn't necessarily being addressed in relation to COVID at the moment is many of them are struggling because their hospitals are struggling because of the um, outbreak. And you know, a lot of focus is on the public health institutions, rightly. But given the dire um, shortage that we have in Nigeria, we need to make sure that the private hospitals and medical centers are still also alive and functional and able to contribute to the response because we, will, we are going to need every single hand on deck. Yeah, yeah. So I would like to talk about healthcare workers in the light of the crisis. They are also exposed. They are also at risk, not like um, the rest of us. And yeah. they are the ones that are responsible for keeping us alive. Yeah. So for some of them that may be listening or will listen to this, yeah. what, how can they better protect themselves during this period? Um, I mean, if we're, if we're talking about Nigeria, or I think obviously... Globally, my first piece of advice to everyone, every health worker, is to find out what the guidance on personal protective equipment is and what precautions you need to take and make sure you take them consistently. 
it's difficult when you're working in a very busy and, um, you know, pressured environment, but it's very important. And it's important that you look after yourselves because, as you say, they are the ones who are holding up the rest of us. And so looking after yourself is not being selfish in this case. It's actually being quite selfless because we need them alive and healthy. So that's one. But in relation to Nigeria, I think there are a number of things. Um, there is quite a, a, a bit of guidance on clinical management of patients on the NCDC website and Facebook pages. Um, and I don't think many people are aware of it because I often get people asking me for advice on various things, which I end up finding that there's actually a guidance document on the NCDC website. So I think that's a good starting point. But there's also the, you know, doing Ebola, one of the things we did, excuse me, when we're working with um, Lawal Bakari at Ebola Alert and Nigeria Health Watch, one of the things we did was, you know, we would just look at the guidance on personal protective equipment that places like this U.S. Centers for Disease Control and the Public Health England in Nigeria and in the U.K. had issued. And then we would try to adapt it, you know, to the Nigerian circumstance. Okay, this is the gold standard, if you like. This is what we should have. But how do we, you know, we know the Nigerian situation. Okay, we don't have this. What can we substitute this with? What can we substitute that with? So I think that's something people can do as well. If they're looking for something and they can't find it, um, you know, they can't find an immediate local solution, then they should look at how they can adapt some of the international recommendations. WHO website also has quite a lot of advice. Um, and, you know, that's something else, you know, when I talk about what other people could do, you know, that's something that Nigerian doctors, nurses who are abroad and want to sort of contribute in some way could do, helping to, you know, turn some of the guidance and um, advice, helping to, if possible, you know, raise donations of some of the equipment, but conscious that it's got to be stuff that's usable in the Nigerian context. But, you know, I think those are some of the things. But like I said, it's um, it's really about being resourceful and realizing that protecting yourself is important. Yeah, okay. So now, what, what advice do you have for the rest of us, we ordinary folks? What can we do in these trying times? There are, of course, there's this scourge of fake news and uh, misleading information. And also, I get messages from people and um, in my inbox is about how to volunteer yep. and they would like yes. to help and all that. Yes. What are the available channels that you are aware of for that? Right. Okay. Um, first thing I would want to say to people generally is be calm, as difficult as that sounds. Um, do not panic because you don't want the anxiety getting to you before the virus does. Um, so, that's the starting point. And there are a number of mental health resources available as well that anyone can use anywhere in the world that you find yourself. And I recommend that people use those um, because it is a very challenging time. Then in terms of what people can do, they can choose to pass on only credible messages from recognized channels, from the Center for Disease Control, or the, you know, the Public Health England or whatever it is in your country do restrict yourself to passing on those messages. You can choose not to pass on the sensational panic-making messages. You know, that's one of the things I've personally chosen to do. Um, 
that's one of the things I've personally chosen to do. You know, so their messages are common. I just delete. I just look at the headline. I, I just delete because, you know, I don't see what I gain by getting into a lot of um, excitement or anger about what's not happening or what's going wrong when I can channel that into actually doing something positive. Which brings me to the question about volunteers. Um, I think by all means approach the you know the necessary organizations, the NHS or in Nigeria, NCDC or your state ministry of health. Because people often forget, you know, there are different roles and responsibilities in this outbreak for the states and for NCDC and for the federal ministry. So do reach out to them, but also reach out to other voluntary groups. You know, there's the Red Cross, there's all sorts of other different groups, you know, who might be working. They might not be not the, you know, the immediate um, responders, but they also need support and they're also working on, on, on that. So that's one. I know, for instance, that, you know, NCDC on their Facebook page and Twitter, they are very responsive, usually within 24 hours. So that's probably, you know, if reach out to them there and see and probably follow them because they will probably at some point, if they do, issue calls for volunteers. But I think it's also important in doing that to be conscious of the fact that these people are under a lot of pressure, all these organizations, whether in the UK, the US or Nigeria or anywhere in the world. And so um, if they don't respond immediately, you know, they don't respond in the way that you expect, um, we probably all need to exercise a bit of patience with them and, and understand the kind of pressure they are dealing with and the, their need to focus their resources on, on you know, what's most urgent. Which then brings me to the other step, which is, do you actually need to volunteer with NCDC or with um, Public Health England or the NHS? Or could, are there things that you could do on your own to pass on the message or together with your friends? You could, for instance, set up a group that passes on or creates, let's say, your media advertising people. You could take some of the messages that are already on the existing websites. As long as you're sure you're sticking to the correct message, you can find more creative ways of sharing those. You know, you could translate some of them into different languages, into your own language, because that, many of them haven't been translated, I'm sure. And, you know, you could set up, I've seen people talking about setting up ways of getting food to people who are going to be in lockdown who might have difficulty in food you know here in the uk i'm also aware of people in streets who are getting food to their neighbors you know there's a whole lot that um, we can do without asking for permission so to speak you know obviously you don't want to um you know you don't want to go off on a tangent do something that's not sanctioned officially but you know you could start and just say hey this is what i'm doing rather than saying please what can i do you know, so I think that's what I would say. And in doing that, the other thing I would plead with people is that, you know, before you start that initiative, why don't you check and see who else is working in that area, who else is already doing something like that, and whether you could work with them? Because I don't believe in reinventing the wheel. Um, I think unless, of course, you, you know, want just to build your own personal reputation or or, or or ego, I would suggest that perhaps you look into working with who's already doing work. Plus, you also probably um, get more bang for your buck, if you like, if you do that. Okay, so... so before and of course, I, I, oh, the other advice, of course, I must add, yeah. is, is that 
please follow the precautions and the guidance that are issued yeah. wherever yeah. you live. Of course. Of course. Uh, before I before I let you go, let's just talk about some long view issues. Yeah. Um, what about research? What about funding for basic research in Nigeria? Mm-hmm. Uh, how how do we really go about that? And this is why I'm thinking about this. I mean, the crisis, of course, has created some bottlenecks around supply chains. You know, mm-hmm. people can get test kits ventilators and uh, things like that and um, you look at say a country like india which is the leading exporter in the world of generic drugs are we are we really doing enough in terms of research in nigeria are we pouring too much money into say tertiary education as opposed to funding basic intermediate research it, it not it doesn't necessarily have to be cutting edge stuff like in the developed world but generics and synthesized pharmaceuticals and stuff like that how do we go about that what what would be a useful policy framework yeah i think there are a number of ways of of looking at this first is you know that my earlier point in the health sector about accountability it also applies to our universities you know what research are they actually doing at the moment and what are they producing in relation for what, you know, the little that they're getting, right? Yeah. So, you know, and, and putting in place a system that holds them to account on that, if you see what I mean. So that's one aspect, getting more for what we already have. The other is, I mean, Nigerians are incredibly resourceful people. The story I often tell is the story of how when I first left Nigeria for the UK in 2001, mobile phone licenses had just been issued. Um, that was about, they'd been issued maybe June that year. I left in September 2001. I didn't come back to Nigeria for 18 months, 20 months after that. When I came back, on virtually every street corner in Lagos, there was a handset repairer. These were people who 18 months before had never seen a handset. Yeah. They didn't do any physics lessons. They didn't have any engineering lessons. They didn't have anybody teaching them. And that sprang up. And so the question is, how do we harness that? And we have examples. You know, we had the um, the organization called PRODA, which was born out of the Biafran scientists, you know, what they were able to do during the Biafran War, which, is, again, is another example of the resourcefulness. So I think that's one of the ways, you know, finding ways of pulling together some of those um, resourceful people, funding them, being able to have some sort of vetting system of the ones that are likely to actually have greater utility, and then supporting those on and having a channel. We can run competitions for solving various problems. You know, we need ventilators, as you point out. Are there people who can come up with different solutions? I've just had a message this morning from a returnee doctor who says he's teamed up with a biomedical engineer in Enugu and they are going to ask people who have broken down ventilators in any form across Nigeria to send them to them and to see what they can cannibalize and use to create more that function. You know, that sort of thing. That's, you know, people like that need to be identified and supported, both financially and also in terms of resources to get what they need, for instance, around getting some of those products tested and through the, you know, um, things they need to get to market. Yeah, yeah. 
So, I mean, so, basically what I'm calling for is, you know, some kind of innovation fund and process. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. So, thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you, Toby, and, um, and I, I've, I've appreciated your opportunity to share some of my thoughts. Thank you.